Exodus chapter number 2 tonight, I want to speak to you on verses 11 through verse 15. Now, we'll say 14. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 2, verse number 11, And it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren, and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian, smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. When he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to stand to preach your word. And Lord, I've asked you already once to help me. I ask you again, Lord, please speak through me and use me. Clearly direct my thoughts that it may focus in on what your scriptures are telling us this evening. And Lord, I pray that everybody in this room would understand that I don't have any personal agendas. I'm just simply trying to preach the cross and preach the Lord Jesus and preach loving him and serving him. Lord, and I pray today that that would be clearly conveyed through the message. I pray that you would use me as a vessel, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've been called to full-time ministry, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm very much like uh, the Bible uh, where Paul says, And I thank the Lord Jesus, counting me faithful, having put me into the ministry. And I really do believe, and you can think whatever you want. You think, oh, Brother Andrew, you're just in the ministry because you get to play golf a lot. Well, that hasn't worked out very much lately. But uh, you may think that I'm in the ministry because it would be easy. I don't know what you think. But I truly believe that the ministry is the highest calling that I could ever have. I sat across the table from a teenager the other day counseling her, and I said, look, if I believed the answer for you was in the medical industry, I would have entered that. If I believe the answer for you was in the psychological industry, I would have entered that. But I believe the answer for every man is in the gospel ministry. And I believe it's universal. It doesn't need to change if you're in Africa, in Mexico, in Papua New Guinea, or here in Joshua. The message is the same. The Lord Jesus can change your life if you'll just let him. And I'm thankful for the calling on my life. Boy, I sure don't feel worthy. And I know me, and I know what God has asked me to do, and I'm so thankful for it. But man, many times I feel quite overwhelmed when I try to prepare a sermon or when I try to stand up and preach. I just feel inadequate in many ways, but I have to at that time remind myself it's the Lord using me, and I'm thankful that He does. But even though I've been called to full-time ministry, I believe that's a term that we often use to label preachers and to label evangelists and maybe even missionaries. But in reality, I've never found in the Word of God one person that was called to part-time ministry. That goes from the deacons, that goes all the way to just the lay people in the church. We use the term full-time ministry, and really we use the term ministry rather loosely today. I want to not offend anybody when I say this. I don't want to break your heart or upset you or, or 
maybe rub you the wrong way, but I do not believe the ministry is cleaning toilets. Even if it's in the church. I do not believe the ministry is vacuuming this carpet, although I will say if they give awards for well-vacuumed carpet, we would have to be nominated at least. Especially the anniversary day when we had the 29 in the carpet. That was pretty good. I like that. We look like the Ranger Stadium, except there's more victories here than there are there. Amen. I don't believe that the ministry is designing a good slide for a sermon. I don't believe the ministry is uh, making a, a good tract to hand out. I don't believe the ministry is organizing someone to come set up a bounce house for little kids to come to church. I don't believe that's the ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you find out exactly what the ministry is, and it's been given to each and every one of us. The Bible says that God hath reconciled us unto himself, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. If what you're doing cannot be directly linked to bringing someone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't believe you can label it as the ministry. Just believe I don't, just like I don't believe if you hand someone a pen, they become a novelist or an author of a, of a work. I just don't believe that we can call everything the ministry. The ministry is simply this, bringing someone to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for them on Calvary. That's the ministry. And that was not just given to preachers. That was not given to missionaries or evangelists. That was given to every single child of God who has been reconciled unto God. Because those are the ones who have received the ministry of reconciliation. But here's the problem. Many times, the way we live our lives makes it impossible for us to have an effective ministry. The way people see us and the way people's idea of who we are and what we do is really not that one that would behoove a Christian and not one that would really uh, allow us to be identified with Christ. They look at us and they say, well, if you're a Christian, I don't want any of that. So tonight I simply want to speak to you on this topic. Is your ministry an effective ministry or an infected ministry? Everybody, I want you to take your Bibles right here in verse number 11. Look with me in verse number 11. I want to show you that in each of our lives, and just like in the life of Moses, there is a time of preparation. Verse number 11, the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren, and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian, smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, we spoke last week of Moses being placed in the basket and laid in the flags or, or, or the, the reeds for Pharaoh's daughter to find him. Now, the Bible says that he's about three months old when that happens. And now from three months of age all the way to what I would consider a young man, now Moses finds himself somewhat what we would label a prince of Egypt. I mean, at least he is in good standing with Pharaoh, and his mother is Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses kind of was raised in Egyptian home with Egyptian principles and Egyptian thoughts and, and education. And it's an amazing thing how God was preparing Moses the entire time 
to do something great for him. I want you to notice, first of all, how Moses was being prepared. First of all, he was being prepared because each and every day he saw his brethren. Look in verse number 11. Even though he's raised in Egyptian home, Moses very well knew who his people were. The Bible says Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren. God had already put in Moses' heart a love for his brethren. Now they were in slavery, and they were in bondage to Egypt, and each and every day they were building buildings and, 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 and making these large, uh, amazing monuments for Egypt. But Moses did not consider himself an Egyptian. He knew that he was a Jew. And Moses loved the Jewish people. Did you know that God is uniquely making you for a great ministry that others cannot do? I I wasn't going to use this illustration, but I will, and I don't know if she's listening tonight. Oftentimes, my mother-in-law and and my father-in-law listen to my sermon, but... I hope she doesn't get mad at me using this, but my mother-in-law lost her mother at a very young age. Uh, I would say under, what was six years old, honey? Some, 16. She lost her mother at 16 years old. She then became somewhat the woman of her house, and she had to help her brothers and her sisters, and she had to cook, and she had to prepare things, and, and she grew up in a preacher's home. Can I ask you this? Why would God allow that to happen to such someone who's trying to do right and trying to do good and losing someone so special to them? Lost her mother at 16 years of age. Why would God allow that to happen? Well, because this. Anytime my mother-in-law needs to help somebody who has experienced a heartbreak that others cannot begin to fathom, she can put her arm around them and tell them, I know what you're going through. Moses was being uniquely qualified and educated and trained for the ministry that he would eventually have. Now look, he wasn't even with his people, but every day he saw his people working and laboring, and it was moving his heart, and it was working his heart. Uh, Look, you may have faced hard times in your life, but hard times only make you stronger as a Christian, and it's those times when you see God most clearly in your life. And God's able to use you and and mold you into somebody who can eventually help somebody else and minister to them and tell them you know what they're going through and tell them you care about them and tell them you're praying for them. God's uniquely made you. And the people that you can reach, I may never be able to talk to. But God's qualified you for the ministry. He was considerate of his brethren. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. And I believe that it should be a Christian's duty to be kind to others, whether they're a Christian or not. I believe it's a Christian's duty to share the love of Christ with someone, even if it's not through a a, a gospel presentation. But we ought to share the love of Christ in our daily actions. When we drive through traffic, we ought not... Well, let's go on. Amen. We ought to share the love of Christ, and we ought to reach out to help a brother. Right now, at my home, I have a, uh, a stray dog living there. And uh, you may say, what a, 
what a terrible idea, and I know it goes against everything my father's taught me. In fact, I was quite afraid for him to even see the dog because I thought he would beat me and correct me and tell me, I always taught you better than that. If you're looking for a dog, it's a good little dog. doesn't get into the trash. She's uh, very nice. Um, she's only carrying 13 puppies. No, no, I, I don't actually know. But uh, if you're looking for a dog, I'll gladly give this one to you. But this dog showed up on my porch, and I usually run the dogs away because they get into my trash. And it's so frustrating having to pick up last night's supper, even though you've already thrown it away. And this dog, at about 12.30 one morning, I went to get myself a drink from the refrigerator. I looked over, and I saw this dog just sleeping under my porch. And, and the dog wasn't doing anything wrong. It wasn't in the trash. It wasn't uh, uh, scratching my windows or doing anything stupid. It was just sleeping there. And the big, strong, burly hunter, sportsman guy who shoots everything he sees looks at this dog, and I just didn't have the heart to run it off for no reason. And now we put water out for it every day. And when we have leftovers, we just cut out the middleman and give them to him instead of letting it get into the trash. <laughs> Look, I believe that we as Christians ought to be tender-hearted, especially to people. It's amazing to me how they put these dogs on commercials and try moving our emotions and yet I go out in town, I drove through Waco yesterday, and there were people who were hurting. There were people who literally had no place to stay tonight. And, and I'm supposed to be moved by a dog? Yeah, I stood there, looked at that dog, and I was moved. But how much more so should we have compassion on our fellow human beings? And we ought to share the love of Christ with them, both in our actions and both with our words. But did you know that's not where the verse ends when it says we ought to do good unto all men? The Bible then goes on to say, especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Moses loved his brethren. He cared about them. And God had already put into his heart a burning de desire to see God move for his people. And God has put into your heart some desires. You go to Brian Archery and you see if he loves bus kids. Just ask him. He'll tell you. And what's amazing is he has personal experience on being on the other side of the door. He, he's the one who, who was waiting on the bus on the curb. You go to, to Joe Nichols and you ask him if he cares about the drug act. You ask him if he cares about the person who's in trouble with the law, but it's not a bad person. They're just doing bad things. You ask Joe Nichols. You know why? Because he has personal experience, and he loves those people, and he's trying to reach out to them. And chances are, if you thought long and hard about it, God has put a burning desire in your heart for a specific group of people. And the desire in Moses' heart was to see his brethren relieved of their oppression. I want you to notice, secondly, he had a concern for the burdens of his brethren. Verse number 11 says that he looked on their burdens. Do you know that Galatians chapter 6, verse number 2, instructs us that we are to bear one another's burdens? Oftentimes we, we say, oh brother, I'm praying for you. But that's a really weak way to say, I'm not going to think about this again. 
instead of just praying, and I do believe prayer is a very uh, undervalued thing and definitely an underutilized thing, but I believe instead of just saying, oh, brother, I'm praying for you, when we follow up and say these words, hey, if I can do anything for you, you let me know. We ought to mean them. Bearing burdens means that you take on some of the weight. There's no way I could move that piano alone. And if I got Brother Luke, we could probably, he's a pretty strong guy, we could probably move it at that point. But it would be extremely heavy, so I'd call the guy who everybody calls for moving. I'd call JT. And JT and me and Brother Luke would hop on this piano and we'd try picking it up. And I would bet that we could barely move it. But you know what? If I called Brother Billy, he'd be a great supervisor. (laughs) And he's not even denying that. But did you know if I got enough people around, the burden becomes less heavy for everyone? Even the one whose idea it was to move the item, the burden becomes less heavy on me when others carry some of the load. Just saying, oh, brother, I'll say a five-second prayer for you, that is a terrible way to bear someone's burden with them. When somebody's uh, sick and in the hospital asking if you could cook supper for someone's loved ones and saying, I know this is a difficult time, can I just bring your family supper? That's bearing someone's burden. When you know that someone doesn't quite have the time to maintain their property because they've got so much other stuff going on, you say, hey, I, I have a lawnmower. Can I just come over and mow your yard? Just, just be a blessing to you. That's bearing someone's burden. Bearing someone's burden is a real deal. And people are really struggling with issues in our church. And we ought not just look at them and say, oh, I hope the Lord does something. But we are often God's tool for doing something. He was concerned with their burdens. Oftentimes, the most amazing things are so insignificant when they're in our hands, but they're made wonderful when they're in God's hands. Who knew that while David was practicing with that sling, I would think that he was just killing time. He's had nothing better to do, just practicing hitting Coke cans. And yes, if you're wondering, he was shooting at Coke cans. It's in the King James Version. Just set some Coke cans up over there and throw that rock and hit that rug. Just killing time. Not necessarily training, not necessarily preparing. But, you know, a lion and a bear do show up and he's able to take care of them. And who knew that such a childish weapon would turn into a WMD? You know what that stands for, right? A weapon of massive destruction. Yes, I changed it just a ton because Goliath was massive. Who knew that God would take something so insignificant? When God called Moses, God says, hey, Moses, what's that in your hand? Moses said, well, uh, it's, it's just a rod. It's a staff. I just, I'm a little gimpy, or I use it to, to beat the herd. And God says, hey, Moses, how about you throw that on the ground? And when it was out of Moses' hands and it was in God's hands, God did something wonderful with it. And that staff was instrumental in many of the miracles in Moses' ministry, all because God can use what you have. 
You may say, Brother Andrew, I'm not a, a great speaker. There's no way I could go to prayer meeting and just lead the prayer meeting and impress everybody with our, my prayers. Brother Andrew, there's no way I could stand up before a bus, uh, a bus and sing songs and, and be goofy like old Brother Jerry Creamer. There's just no way I could do that. That's fine. Did you know that God is uniquely preparing you? And when God opens the door for you to serve Him, never shut those doors which God has opened. And step through them and use the gifts that God has given you. I began watching a television show. I was over at my father's and my mom's house and I was watching TV with dad. And the show came on and these men were forging knives and swords. And it was very similar to Chopped. How many of y'all know what Chopped is? It's the cooking show. It's four people, and they have a certain amount of time to cook food, and they give them a mystery basket. And they, you ask Brother Andrew, how do you know this show so well? It's because my wife loves that thing. We watch it all the time. You can stamp my man card later. That's fine. But, uh, you know, it's very similar to that. They give these men, there's four blacksmiths. And they say, this is the metal today. They didn't know before. They take off this little blanket, this little sheet covering it, and they'll have a piece of metal down there. And they'll say, in three hours, we need you to craft a blade from this metal. And this metal can be anything. It can be a file. It can be a, like a socket. It can be anything. And they have to take this metal and stretch it out and form it in the... And the shape of a knife. It's an amazing television show. It's actually probably one of my favorites on TV. Because anytime they curse, it's bleeped out. <laughs> hey, man, that's good. And you say, you watch that? Well, unfortunately, I do. My wife made me, though, and I saw it at our preacher's house. So maybe, <laughs> I, I don't know. But I watched this show, and it's just amazing to me what these guys can create in three hours. I had no idea you could create a nine-inch knife in three hours. I had no idea. And these guys, they take this weapon, and did you know, they take this metal, and did you know if they never put that metal into fire, it would never be moldable and shapeable? And they could beat on that metal all day long, and it never change its form and never change its shape. It's only after they've plunged it into that furnace and they've allowed that extreme temperature to burn it. And then they take that, that just hunk of metal and they take their hammer and they begin to form that blade. And they begin to form, it's just a hunk of metal and they beat on it and they beat on it and they beat on it and they make it to what they've seen in their mind. Now, the metal the whole time has no idea what's taking place. It's been thrust into a fire, and now it's taking blow after blow after blow. And many times that's very similar to the way our life feels, where we're just thrown into the fire, and it seems that there's no relief. And after the fire, we receive blow after blow after blow, bad news after bad news after bad news. We can identify with Job in the fact that every time he got some bad news, somebody was right behind with some worse news. But did you know after that blacksmith gets done shaping and that blade cools down, what was just hours ago a hunk of metal now is a refined, sharpened, and beautiful tool? Look, God may be putting you through the furnace. God may be molding you and shaping you. And you say, Brother Andrew, life's just so difficult right now. 
then I promise you your ministry is just on the other side. And one day when, when your, your pain is long gone and your suffering is long gone, you'll sit across the table from someone who's going through exactly what you are and all you'll be able to say is, I know what you're going through. And that's when we can bear each other's burdens. There was a time of preparation in Moses' life And to be very honest with you, in the Old Testament, I feel like this is one of my very favorite stories because God so perfectly had a plan for Moses' life. And you follow the chronicle uh, step by step, and God takes just a child in a basket to being the deliverer of Israel. But there was a time of preparation. Secondly, I want you to notice this. Moses had a terrible plan. In verse number 12, we see Moses react and almost take matters into his own hands. The Bible says in verse 11 that Moses saw an Egyptian man smiting in Hebrew. Verse 12, and he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Oftentimes... It's easy for us to find solutions in our own heart and in our own mind. Look, this was a godly preparation in Moses' life. The love and the concern that he had for his brethren, I believe, was directly given to him by God. But now as Moses views this this event of this Egyptian man uh, smiting his brother, he takes matters into his own hands and acts upon the situation. And what's so terrible about this act is, it makes it to where others cannot learn from him. Oftentimes we take matters into our hands. Do you know I've never found in the Bible where someone should get on Facebook and correct someone? In fact, I believe I could make a very strong case for going to someone in private. And speaking to them and saying, what you're doing doesn't seem very, very beneficial. And then if that doesn't work, going and asking someone else to come with you and saying, I just don't think what you're doing is a very good thing to show everybody in public. But no, what we do is we do the Facebook ambush. Right? We, we get in the comments and we just lay into them. And we throw every bit of scripture that we've ever learned in Sunday school verses that have nothing to do. You know, Jesus wept. He's weeping over you going to this location. Right? That's what we do. We throw every verse of scripture we've ever learned. And, and we just, we, it's like we just totally assault them in public in front of everybody. That's not very becoming of a Christian. In fact, I would say we much more model Moses when we just take matters into our own hands instead of doing it God's way. You know, it's, it's not a very good idea to attack someone on Facebook. You know what else is not a good idea? To find out that somebody's going through something in church and then in your section with your group of friends and your little clique begin to discuss the solutions that that person should be doing to make their problems go away. Act as if you have the solution. You say, well, that person's kids are so rebellious. If I were that person, I'd just smack them upside the head. Oh, good. That way they can call CPS and they never see their child again. You're a great parent. Amen. We sit there and we act like we know. and we, We act as if we have the solutions and we handle matters in our own power. 
And in Moses' case, this was some of the reasons it was such a terrible plan is first of all, Moses acted on this when he had a sense of solitude. In verse number 12, it makes quite clear, and I love the way the Bible puts this, and he looked this way and that way and saw no man. When he saw there was no man, only then would he act upon what he was thinking. Did you know that your character is one of the few things that only is more visible in the dark? Did you know that you are at your best and your worst when you're alone? And when you feel secure, and when you feel that there's no one else in the world that knows what you're doing or what you're about to do? Isaiah chapter 29 verse 15 says, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. And their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? Woe unto the person who tries hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord and from the presence of others. They hide themselves so that their deeds may not be manifest in public. And oftentimes we take matters into our own hands, and we try connivingly and sneaking our way around things so that nobody else finds out what we're doing, but we very well know. When I was a kid, this is the way I would do it. I would go to my mom. Well, actually, I became smart as, a, as an older person. Mom occasionally said no. I would say, I would, so I, I figured out a way. I would just go to dad and I'd say, dad, is it okay if I go to so-and-so's house? And a few times, Dad would say, sure, I don't care, whatever, good, get out of my hair, I don't want to deal with you. Occasionally, Dad would say, yeah, that's fine. Then Dad wised up, and he just started saying, go ask your mother. But what I would do is I would almost try pitting them against one another. Now, if Mom said no... Boy, I got in trouble one time when Mom said no, and I still went to Dad. Oh, boy. And I did not inform my dad. I did not go to Dad and say, hey, Dad, Mom already told me no, but I was wondering if it would be okay if I went to so-and-so's house. I didn't say that. I acted as if this was the first time I had ever asked this question. And I went to Dad, and I said, Dad, could I? You're a good dad very kind and generous and and to be honest with you if I could trade of all the millions of people in the world today and in the Bible I would still pick you as my father (laughs) Father Abraham ain't got nothing on you dad Solomon raised a ton of kids you're the man dad can I please go over to so and so's house now I I would do this connivingly, sneakingly you know why? because I wanted my way And don't we often try fixing problems that way? We sneak around so that nobody really knows our motives and our intentions. And and Moses felt very comfortable when he felt a sense of solitude that nobody would see what he was about to do. Not only was there a sense of solitude, he had a sense of secrecy. Look at this in verse number 12. Not only did he look this way and that way, and when he saw there was no man, he slew the Egyptian. 
So once he had the comfort of knowing that nobody would see him, he went ahead and did what he was going to do. Now notice this, the Bible said, and hid him in the sand. Moses literally buried his mistake. He took it and put it out of the sight. So not only did he not want anybody to see what he had done, he didn't want anybody to find out about what he had done. Did you know that you are as good as what you think you can get away with? If I asked you if robbing $100 was wrong, you would automatically say, absolutely. But what if I could guarantee you that you wouldn't get caught? Well, what, what about a $10,000? You are as good as what you think you can get away with. And Moses not only liked the solitude of it, he liked the fact that he could hide it, that nobody would ever find out about what he had done. He would fix the problem and then just cover it up so that nobody could call him out on it again. You know, the Bible says that whoso cover their sins uh, shall not prosper, but he that... For, uh, confesseth and forsaketh shall find mercy. If you cover your sin, God will never allow you to be what you ought to be. God will never bless that type of person. I want you to take your Bible to Psalm chapter 32. And I want to explain to you why so many Christians are miserable. I really believe that if you look long and hard enough in the Bible... The Bible will quite clearly tell you the path of joy. And I'm about to reveal unto you one of the quickest paths to sorrow. Psalm chapter 32, verse number 1, the Bible says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. Notice this. When I kept silence, in other words, when I hid my sin and did not confess it and forsake it, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. The Bible makes quite clear, if you have hidden sin in your life, and covered it and buried it so that nobody would realize what you've done, and tried just making it where it would just go away, that person is miserable. The only way to find true happiness and true joy and true peace with God Almighty is knowing that there's nothing between you and Him. Knowing that when you lay your head on your pillow at night, there's nothing that separates God's hand of blessing, God's hand of provision. Knowing that you've done nothing to upset your Heavenly Father, that's peace and that's joy. Moses covered this man as if he could just wipe away what he had done, but the Bible makes quite clear that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, beholding the evil and the good. The Bible also says there is nothing that is not naked and open to the eyes of our Heavenly Father. God sees all. God knows all. We cannot let the darkness hide. We cannot let God forget. God only forgives and forgets when we have the common sense and the knowledge to confess and forsake. But oftentimes when we do things in secrecy, when we think that we have our own solution, it will always, always fail. 
So yeah, Moses made a bad decision. And this is what his bad decision led to. A torturous product. Now would you all agree with me, Moses was called to have a tremendous ministry for the children of Israel. He's the deliverer. He was the one who could do what nobody else could do because he had God's hand on him. When the burden was so heavy on the children of Israel, they were looking for deliverance. And Moses was the guy that the Lord had called. But when Moses made a mistake, guess what? It hindered his ministry. Look here in verse number 13. We're just about done. The Bible says, And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. Now, this isn't an Egyptian man and a Hebrew man. This is two Hebrews, two brothers, the the same brothers that Moses cares deeply about. Two Hebrews strove together, and he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou fellow? Or why why are you fighting with your brother? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. You see, Moses' ministry was hindered by the mistake he had made just a day earlier. I want you to notice, first of all, a forgotten deed. Why did Moses not recall this thing when when he was prompted to act and intervene between two brothers who were fighting? Why did Moses not think, hey, yesterday I wasn't in such a, 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 a dissimilar situation. I was kind of in the same deal yesterday, and this is how I handled it. Why did he not recall that? You know why? Because it's much easier for us to point out the flaws of others than to see our own. It's very similar to the way we already see in nature. You see, I look at Brother John tonight. I can see the tie he's wearing. I can see his face. I can see his hair. It looks so natural. No one can tell. Just for men. (laughs) I can look at Brother John tonight. You know what? I'm having tremendous difficulty seeing myself. I don't know if I have a booger right now. I could have broccoli between my teeth. That'd be weird, though, because I haven't eaten broccoli in probably three years. So, But I can see Brother John, and I can point out his flaws. I can point out his features on him, but it's very difficult for me to see myself. In spiritual settings, it's very similar. We see people's problems, and yet we overlook our own. We see people's problems and we forget that even though we may uh, have been in Christianity longer, it wasn't so long ago that we were dealing with the same issues that they're dealing with. We look at others and it's like we've forgotten the failures in our own life and we call theirs out and call theirs to attention. I just don't believe that's very becoming of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. In the same passage, it talks about when you see just a splinter in your brother's eye, how easy it is to see that. But if we would first remove the beam from our own eye, then we could clearly see to remove our brother's splinter. You see, it's, it's a simple principle. It's so easy for us to see everyone else's flaws and yet to forget our own. In your ministry, don't act as if you're so high and holy that nobody can touch the hem of your garment. If a sinful lady could touch the hem of our Savior's garment, I just don't believe that we should act as if nobody can touch ours. 
If we can touch him and move him with the feelings of our infirmities, it's a shame if we think, well, I can't believe they would deal with the thing so small as peer pressure. We act as if teenagers ought to be much more advanced spiritually than they already are. Let me ask you, what did your teenage years look like? Were you the model in the youth group? Did everybody look up to you and say, Wow, brother, so-and-so, are we going to go soul winning today? How many days soul winning did you spend when you were a teenager? And we look at our youth group and we say, I can't believe we only had 25 here tonight. Look, our teenagers are not these monumental giants. And then we look at us and we're 50 years old and we've been in Christianity now 30 years. We've sat under three different preachers and, and we've been soul winning now for three weeks straight. And we look at our teenagers and say, ha! What are you doing? How easy it is for us to see everyone else's failed deeds and to overlook our own. The only person who ever walked this earth who was perfect never threw a stone. In fact, he looked at others and said, the one person that's perfect in the group, you pick up a stone and throw it. And then the one person who was perfect did not take a stone and throw it. And yet he forgave. We ought to be very careful when we look at others and it's easy for us to see their failures and their flaws. And Moses looked at their failures and said, what are you doing striving? And the brother says, it wasn't just yesterday you were doing the same thing. Please let us be more gracious and more forgiving and more understanding. Now, if we catch a brother in outright sin, I don't believe we ought to just pat it over and say, well, I've messed up now and But I do believe we ought to be helpful and we ought to care for people. Moses had a forgotten deed, but this is the saddest part. Because of this this deed that he had done, he had a foregone ministry. Moses had God's hand on his life. Now Moses does not yet know what God's preparing him to do, but in the next chapter, God reveals to him exactly what he needs him to do. He needs him to be the deliverer, the guy who raises his staff at at the Red Sea and everybody complaining and everybody bickering and Moses have the faith to say, stand still and watch God save us. And, And God did amazing miracle through Moses. And God's plan for Moses is so tremendous. But notice this, Moses disqualified himself from ministering to others because of the mistake that he made. Let me ask you a question. How many of us would attend a revival on separation from the world if I told you that Brother Lot was preaching? What if I said I was going to have a a couple in and and a man was going to teach the men and and a lady was going to teach the ladies on honesty and integrity and I introduced the couple and it was Ananias and Sapphira? I told you that uh, uh, we would uh, have someone come in and and speak to our church on on morality and integrity and faithfulness to the ministry, and yet I introduced the speaker as Demas. And the Bible says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Your message is always directly linked to the messenger. They're inseparable. You know the reason that Jesus' message was so powerful and so many people were drawn to Jesus' message? Because the messenger was right. 
And the messenger wasn't willing to do anything that he told them to do. He was willing to do it all. And he was teaching them out of a heart of, I have already done this and this is my life and I'm asking you to follow me. The message will always be linked to the messenger. And as Moses makes a mistake here, he then goes to his brother and says, hey, what are you doing? And they say, you made the same mistake. Why should we even listen to you? Man, make sure we're living a life of integrity, a life of morality, a life of Christian love. Let's stop talking about Christian love as if handing someone a bottle of water is really that. I did that for a stray dog. I think we can do, do a little bit more for a human being who needs the Lord Jesus. I, I think that we need to reach out and we need to care for others. But while we're doing that, make sure that we're living the right way and make sure that we're walking the walk that we're often talking. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians, uh, keeping uh, my body under subjection lest by any means when I have preached to others, I should be myself a castaway. He says, I, I have to live right and I have to be right so that when I preach to others, I'm not doing the things that I've already told them not to do. We're done. And you say, praise the Lord, this is boring. I, I believe that actually. The other day, after all those rainstorms and all the winds, I, I think I heard this. We had 70 mile an hour winds at my home. And uh, it's prob- I think when, when I found this dog, it actually had Kansas tags. So there's a good chance that we named the dog Dorothy, actually. But uh, these uh, winds came and the, the rains blew and... And I drove through town one day, and I noticed that one of the billboards up here, I think it was the billboard right here in front of QT, actually, had fallen down. And the other day, we, we uh, as a church, purchased some sign space, and, and we plastered our church anniversary up there, and we plastered the bow of the knee up there, and we were kind of introducing the community to some of the uh, uh, events we were going to have in spring and in the early summer, and, And we had that, so I looked at that sign, and this is the thought that came across my mind. Did you know the billboard has to be standing for it to convey the message? A message to the ground does no good. And the higher the billboard stands, the farther the message spreads. You go to some of these car lots up here on the interstate, and they have flags probably 150 foot high, and the flags look like they could cover your home if your roof fell off. They're ginormous. The bigger, the higher that stands, the farther it casts. When we as Christians fall, you know what's limited? Our message. When we make mistakes and when we're caught doing things we ought not do, other, people's look at, other people look at us and say, well, you're carrying the message of God. Why should I even care? I mean, if you're going to fall, have we not seen this time and time again with national preachers who, who have just a hand of ministry that some of us can never even dream of having? They have such an impact on our nation, and yet they're caught uh, uh, sleeping around with a prostitute or they're caught... Uh, sleeping around with a, a teenager in their church? Have we not seen this time and time again? And we would never invite those preachers in to have a guest conference, even though they may be good preachers. You know why? Because when they fall, their message is ruined. 
what's the difference with you? I mean, if we're not living the life that God has called us to live, how in the world can we expect anyone else to live it? The message will only cast as far as you are standing tall. And I hope that tonight you have an effective ministry and you're not infecting the ministry.